This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Good afternoon, cheesy listeners. I'm Julie. And as always, I'm Camille. Today, we will finish our two-part series, Cheese in Asia. Cheese in Asia, which has been a blast, and I've learned more about milk production in Asia in these past couple of months than I would ever have imagined. So, Julie, where are we headed next? Well, Camille, we are off to the farthest east of Asia we can go, Japan. So let's dive right into it. Camille, what's up with all this milk? As per usual, we return to a distant past. Welcome to the Meiji. Who are the Meijis? Well, the full name is Meiji Tenno, Emperor of the Japan from 1867 to 1912, whose reign in Japan transformed the entire country from a feudal one to a great power holder, quite a powerful political player. Meiji Tenno believed that the country needed to modernize, as the West had, and so in 1868, he created the Charter Oath of Five Principles, um, helped launch Japan into a new set of internal infrastructures that would lead the country towards new innovation and fundamentally a drastic change in Japanese culture, which... It's really hard to do, actually. So think new constitution, no more um, privatized land, emphasis on education, new military. Mm-hmm. Everything is open, open scope. Mm-hmm. And what's specific to us is his focus on diet because the country was now open to more international trade. A huge flush of new products entered the country and people were curious about what those things were. So with the Meiji Restoration came the emphasis on new eating habits. The Meiji government decided to create a national nutrition program because they noticed that Europeans were built, were more built and beefier. And yes, beefier is right. What this meant was figuring out how to increase the consumption of meat and dairy into people's diets. As we know, Europeans love their cheese. They do love their cheese and they love their meat. And so when we talk about meat, we mean specifically red meat, which is why the Meiji decided to lift the ban on meat to encourage more people to eat it. Eating meat was a longstanding social taboo. Um, didn't mean that people didn't eat it. It just wasn't consumed on a regular basis. So the lift, the ban allowed people to um, see meat as a symbol, civilization of integration towards westernization. Eat meat. You get Kobe beef, right? That's like all the the fine quality beef we can think about. Japanese, when they do something, they do it to the highest quality. It's not just like they're going to switch over. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And I think what's Would you agree to that? I, I, I think I would. There's like an extra dedication to your craft when you're in Japan. Um, and I think what's interesting about this is that Japan is predominantly a fish-eating culture. I mean, every part of the fish, from the head to the intestines to the tail, all of it is made edible, which is why it's so fascinating how dairy becomes a big part of this. Especially so because as an island, obviously you have fish nearby. Um, dairy, it, you either have maybe one or two um, uh, cows have become domesticated that are of a heritage breed. It's much harder um, to bring cows across land space and everything, but fish is right there. So it's it's, it's not only fish um, so much, but the the use of Japanese landscape um, 
is adapted to what can grow. And rice is a huge part of Japanese diet. So you have lots of rice patties mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you're rain and water. It's, it's all comes together in a very um, holistic image. Yeah. And um, 1876 is when all of this really changes. That's when we start to see dairies blossoming across the country. After World War II, there was a lack of available, pro- available protein sources because of the war. So when America occupied Japan from 1945 to 1952, they introduced a school lunch program based on an American diet, which consisted of one serving of milk per day for Japanese children to supplement the missing protein in their meals. What this did was create a liking for milk, making milk a staple in school lunches. And in the 1960s, the level of dairy produ- production took off into mainstream commercial goods. This is in part because, unlike rice patties, which are seasonal, you can produce milk all year round and you can make many things with milk, as we know. Also, a time when more people were leaving the country, heading to the cities, and farms no longer had that labor force as before, and it created a consolidation of creameries that made operations larger to pro- large. So that they can produce more milk products. And by 1975, there were around 160,000 dairy farmers in Japan.、Mm-hmm. That, and then by 1985, so exactly 10 years later, that number declined sharply to 82,000 farmers.、Um, that's like half that's like half the dairy farmers within a matter of 10 years. Yeah. And,、um, which is sad but, because you see like a. Like a steep decline. But for us, what's important is that by the end of the 1960s, blue cheese and camembert were common cheeses to purchase in the grocery store. So something was definitely underway with cheese making.、Um, before we proceed, I'm only now connecting the dots between the Meiji Empire and the Meiji Milk Company, the Meiji Milk brand.、Um, why that company name is significant with the history of when milk was introduced to Japan. So, for those of you who have yet to see this name, just go to any Asian supermarket and you will see Meiji Milk in the milk section. Which was to me, it was like, ah! <laughs> I was,、um, hopefully that wasn't too high pitched.、Um, I was very, I get very excited when I see connections like this because you, you realize, oh, that labeling. Is something that went back to 1867. That's where that's coming from.、Branding、so it's kind of、important. cool. Branding is significant. It's like Coca Cola, right? It's been around since like 1912 or something.、Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just kind of fun to see where branding goes. But also,、um, I think it, we have to, if we're going to start talking about milk product, we have to head over to a very significant region in Japan.、Um, Both about the Meiji and cheese production, without a doubt, is a part of Japanese culture, which is why we're heading to the farthest north, you could put that in your head, of Japan, to an area called Hokkaido, also called the North Sea Route, Japan's top dairy producing region. In, two, in 2013, Japan's national output of dairy was 7,447,032 tons. 3,848,584 tons、wow. whew, was produced solely in Hokkaido alone. That's about 50% of the production of milk coming from just one region. Also, Japan's really small. So, the, the large numbers and the amount of land available, that 50% is quite high、mm-hmm. um, for milk to be coming from one area. In general, 6% of the milk production is consumed as milk, and then the remaining 40% is, goes into dairy products such as cheese. As it should.、Mm-hmm. And Hokkaido was one of the first places in Japan where large scale cheese production started, mainly because it had the space. 
And this was in part because during the Meiji reign, Hokkaido was viewed as untamed land. So by transforming the region to dairy and farming, it created a symbolic image that Hokkaido was a quote-unquote vibrant matter, meaning special. One account quoted the land as actant of the human body inside and out, which means the land has an active role in the body of Japanese people. And just as a side note, that's probably Mm. directly translated from Japanese which is a language that is flush with metaphors and poetry. And so reading that in English, actant of the human body inside and out, is kind of strange unless you think about it in a metaphorical, poetic way. Um, and it's quite beautiful in Japanese, actually. So Hokkaido is Japan's number one dairy-producing region. Why? Because of climate. Cool air, green grass, fresh air, perfect for, the quality, for quality milk production. One downfall is that it lacks a rainy season, which is essential for quality grass. Even though there are beautiful lush pastures, the grass isn't exactly of highest quality. So regardless, it still produces the most milk, just that the grass that the cows eat aren't, you know, top quality. I think we should put a side note. Um, Julie speaks. You speak Japanese, right? I learned Japanese in college. Okay, I learned. So, well, it can read, can read pretty fluently, so it, which is helpful. Um, I think going back to that comment to me about the vibrant matter, mm-hmm. I just wanted to refer back to it because I, I think that is a kind of a good heading for this um, episode just to give listeners a, a, a feeling of Japanese culture um, and that, that metaphor and the way language is used and the way craft and art art. Artmanship, artistry, word, but is um, very much artistry, uh, craftsmanship. I guess is the word I was looking for. Are, is very much um, part of over uh, old tradition and, mm-hmm. and symbolic and expressive. And so it's really cool that when we were doing this, that Julie can read Japanese and could translate some stuff and give it more meaning than it was. Um, but. Going forward, <laughs> the best quality milk of um, Hokkaido is definitely um, from that area. And so buying fine, great quality is really a big ticket. And however, that's kind of the difficulty is with small versus large scale farms and, and determining the quality of um, the, the the milk itself. So you have lowland farming, you have upland farming, and then you have dairy farming. And all these are kind of took off and happening at the same time. And because so much milk comes from the north, 70% of farmers in Hokkaido are full-time farmers, which is a big percentage to have like 70% of the population of a region mm-hmm. to be focusing on one thing. And what that means is that the community works directly around the dairy industry. Everything's focused around work and work is family. Um, so it is, it is a, it's a representative of the Japanese culture um, in that sense. Mm-hmm. So Japan's premier food production region uh, is still Hokkaido, and it's 1,147,000 hectares of cultivated lamb, which is representing about 25% of the nation's total cultivated lamb. So, you know, it's a chunk, yeah. especially when it has off-weather um, things going on. Speaking of off weather uh, due to bad weather and increased frequency of typhoons as of 2014 japan's milk production has had a slow downward trend and has continued to drop by two percent each year since 2015 hokkaido's fluid milk output right now is tight which used to supply the majority of 
the majority of milk for the country's milk supply. So by 2017, Japan's total fluid milk products fell by 2.2%, which may seem small, but over time that really accumulates. It, is, it has accumulated so far to the point where right now it's at its all time low in 30 years. The economy has been more dependent on importing foreign dairy products and less on localization. We'll touch on this a little bit later when we talk about food self sufficiency rates and what one dairy farmer is doing about it.、Um, there is a slow decline in the number of cows producing milk for 2018, even though there is growth in Hokkaido, the decline elsewhere in the country continues. So, At the moment, Hokkaido's fluid use of milk will continue to be used to compensate for the shortage elsewhere in the country, but there will overall be a reduced demand for dairy commodities such as cheese and butter, with the exception of cream, because Japanese cuisine uses a lot of cream, especially if you think about the, their attention to aesthetic when it comes to food. Think about like baked goods. Cream is a great、um, resource, a, a great tool to. You know, decorate things. Emulsifier. Emulsifier, was, whipped cream. Quite surprised. You know,、yeah. I always thought cream, like creme fraiche and the French and their cream and their butter, but it makes sense.、Um, yeah. Have, I have not been to Japan, unfortunately, so I don't, I would like to know how it's used, but I was surprised that、uh, a large portion of、um, the dairy goes towards cream、yeah. because it's,、um, Well, you have to get cream from the top, and so you're, you're, you're separating、mm-hmm. the liquid from the fat. That, that was kind of cool. We, we did mention Meiji, the dairy company, earlier,、mm-hmm. and it's also worth mentioning Snow Brand Milk Products Company. So, Which is the name, the name, yeah, the name keeps growing, I think, every time it gets acquired by a different company. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge、uh, conglomerate. But in Japanese, Yukijirushi.、Um, One of, the ard- one of the other largest dairy companies in Japan. So let's just call them Snow Brand from here on just because it's easier. I could honestly talk for many episodes about the products that Snow Brand makes, but for the sake of this episode, they make every possible milk product that you can think of, and they have now recently started selling meat products, convenience foods, which probably means like wrapped foods on the go, and wine.、Um, side Which note, I think is just total leap. <laughs> Like、I don't think it's weird that they well, sell wine. wine. Well, they're not making, they're probably most likely buying the, the wine from somewhere else and then putting their name on it. Yeah, but, so、um, if you、I、think mean, that it's weird that they sell wine along with cheese and convenience foods, they also sell pharmaceuticals and they're working on an anti cancer drug, also working okay,、so、on an anti dementia drug. It's, they're huge. Okay, and so, side note, in 1983, they established an embryo transplantation lab where they cryogenically store unborn high grade cat- cattle embryos. And they find out the sex of the embryo through prenatal tests. It's just, so it's like, like a sci fi. It's、like、a sci fi company. And with,、um, with, any, think... with any large conglomerate that tries to make anything and everything, there's probably dirt、um, under the surface. And we didn't, even, we didn't even have to dig that far to find that in 2000, Japan experienced its biggest foodborne outbreak due to a skim milk put out by Snowbrand. It all started with a valve in the facility that went uncleaned for three weeks. Company regulations require the valve to be cleaned every week, so this was a huge no no, and it resulted in more than 13,000 people getting sick and one person dead, which, you know, a lawsuit followed and、um, they lost. So now they're required to state that they had this big, you know, fiasco on their website, and if you Look them up on Wikipedia under Snow Brand Milk Products. There is only two paragraphs talking about the company, one of which 
is a detailed <laughs> explanation of this food poisoning scandal. So they're really, they really, they should be the true cheese cartel. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not just, you know, just cheese, but it's also a part of like real estate and pharmaceutical and yeah. cancer research. And who knows what who else knows? they've got their fingers in. Part, part of the government. So uh, next time you see a snow brand product, they might, they might be owning Japanese it. Japanese cheese they might, cartel. Yeah. Japanese cheese cartel. That's where it all starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we've... So we're gonna hop around a bit because with um, well, learning about Japan, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of fun because there's certain things that you take for granted uh, in the states that you don't think about. And one thing, for example, is grass fed, and that's become very popular um, at least in California. Now you see grass fed stamps on your milk, but in Japan, that's not really a thing. Um, it's grass fed is undoubtedly healthier than grain-fed, so I personally think. But in Japan, the practice is quite, it's not as common. And I think this is mainly due to location. Location, location, location is pretty significant because Japan is really small, and so you have only so much space to do things. So pasture-based dairies are in the countryside, away from where mainstream supermarket distribution can be reached. And this leads to an allocation of dairy production mainly in the north which we learned and then that goes and spreads the rest of the country um what's hard to find is new arable land because how late the dairy industry really took up came about in japan right it didn't really come Mm -hmm. out until the early 20th century um and although you can find luscious greenery in the north and hokkaido it doesn't have a, a great um, rainy season and dairy farmers are picky about their grass because you need rain for grass and it's back and forth so uh, hokkaido is not entirely the most ideal place for quality sustainable grass growing however that is just where the dairy industry is located now um, so the focus is figuring out how to develop technology to distinguish milk from grass-fed cows and ear corn silage-fed cows I didn't know this was such a big deal when we were reading about this, but it is starting to become a concern to the point that the government is even putting up documentations of how to determine different types of grass and mm-hmm. all this stuff. So that led us to learn about a sort of small movement of um, farmers creating what they see as high-quality grass, mm-hmm. and I think that's yeah. what um this is this is where i would like to spend some time talking about some awesome places i found doing unique and peculiar practices for considerably unique for um japanese dairy farming so tokashi shinmura ranch to start is located in tokachi southeast of hokkaido and what they do they do really well hiroaki shinmura is a fourth generation dairy farmer and he convinced his dad to convert the entire ranch into a fully pasture-based farm in 1994 so not that long ago but about a year older than i am um, he knew soil was key for good quality grass and good quality milk so he took years to tend to the overfertilized soil so it could be nutritious and full of lovely microorganisms laying the foundation for a healthy ecosystem they let their cows roam free in the pastures they pee and poop everywhere which you know is is lovely it's a lovely thing that feeds back into the cycle of naturally fertilizing the grass and another intriguing ranch that's focusing on this movement that julie's talking about is tanohata yamachi rakuno and it's the northeastern tip of to tohoku did i say that right yep. <laughs> 
Tohoku, um, and it's in the Iwati Prefecture, which is a mountainous region um, below um, Hokkaido. Mm -hmm. So Kimo, Kimo and Toshiko Yoshisuka are a couple that converted their land into um, beautiful pasture, but it took them two decades to do this, which is quite a lot of time. And they were inspired by Kyojo Nahara, who was sort of um, a guru, kind of, who developed a sustainable model for mountain farming um, in Japan. And, he's, and people referred to him as um, someone who's quite knowledgeable. So his belief was to use native grass to feed cows and allow their biodynamics to be recycled back into the land. So He's pretty um, much again, like the godfather that, of sustainable dairy farming in Japan. In, in Japan, mm -hmm. Japan, yeah. And kind of what really bringing is um, cross-fertilization ecosystem yeah. farming. Um, so Yoshisuka um, started with this intention of bringing um, nature back to the land. And so they started propagating Shiba, which is Jap Japan's native wild grass, and not the dog Shiba, the dog. which which was very hard to find because um, uh, things come in Japanese and then things that are in English always went to like the dog. So it's a, it's a, um, a native grass. And so, the, so with part of the movement, it's not just only creating a healthy ecosystem with the, with the land and everything else, but it's also trying to use heritage um, plants and, and localize them and, and bring light to their significance. So while they were doing this amazing transformation, they raised seven kids and the best part is they did this without electricity. So this is pretty old school because it's not as if they were doing this in the 1800s. They were doing this in the 20th century. Um, so that is some serious dedication. And now three of their sons work on the farm, um, keeping up what they believe is um, true quality work. But it, it's, that's intense. I'm just imagining seven I mean, raising kids. I guess seven you need kids. some kids. Without electricity for ten years—that's a long, long time. But you do need you do need kids for a farm. There's you do. That's hands. why it, there's a lot of like work you can do. Three of them, stay, almost half of them stay. I mean, half of them did stay. <laughs> you can't have three point five sons working on your on your land. Anyway, um, I think what you're getting at, Camille, is that there has to be some good quality cheese with all this beautiful quality milk. Yep, and you are completely right. So, fun facts, which is what we always love. Surprise, surprise. Um, Japan imports the most cheese out of any other country in the world. So Japan imports five times the amount that they make domestically, even though dairies Japan collectively produce around one million pounds of cheese a year to consume. Um, so, yeah, I, that was when I read the statistics of Japan. Uh, just again, it, it, just to keep in mind size and localization, Japan is really small. So the idea that they produce, they import more cheese than any other country means that it's a community of people who really like cheese. Yeah, and um, I was thinking that the Japanese palate was more geared toward milder cheeses, but as we said earlier, camembert and blue cheeses are very, very popular. Um, and so as part of that increase, which is 3% per year, in case you wanted to know, um, it's mainly driven by sales in natural cheese for direct consumption, like shredded cheese for the booming pizza industry, baking sector, processed foods, and ready-to-eat foods. So all good things and stuff that we forget has cheese in it. Um, in summary, the most cheese produced in Japan goes toward other food commodities, not cheese eating, if that makes sense. Which is kind of, which is kind of a shame, I, I, I think. 
the country that produces so much cheese, um, a lot of that cheese doesn't necessarily go to artisan-making cheese, but goes towards, um, like, other cheese product things, like we said before, like butter and cream, but also um, a lot goes into stuff to make pre-made pizzas Mm -hmm. and pre-made foods. Um, It's quite a high percentage of them. So... Even though there's increase in cheese for certain products, there's also domestic production for processed cheese. And yes, I said it, processed. Please don't hurt me. Mm-hmm. But um, processed cheese is raising by 4% um, every year. Uh, bec- not, not because the industry is saying it, but because the the people want it. They want processed the cheese. And so, is- hey, you're going to produce... Yeah, so you're going to produce what people want. Um, and, I mean, there's nothing wrong with processed cheese, but it's not like... It's not like Andante Creamery or anything that's coming through and people are like, yay, you want that more. So no, it's just a different are, market. People are more um, demanding of like convenient, easy-to-eat foods, especially if you go back to the fact that a lot of dairy products was first introduced in children's lunches. Um, I, as a child, would love a stick of string cheese. So, And it, it's easy. I don't have to like worry about it smelling. It's, you know, easy. Um, I, I did... I, I did leave, it's actually recently, so I had string cheese, and I, I left it in my jacket, my pocket in my jacket, and I forgot about it. Pocket cheese. Um, and I was in Florida. I was in Florida, and so it's really hot, and then five days later, I felt something really mushy. And I have to say, I put it back in the fridge, and I ate it, and it was fine. That's disgusting. But, but I guess that is a perk of processed cheese. You do, you do not die cheese, if you exactly. eat it five days later after having it been out fermenting in your sweaty pocket. Yeah. That's I think disgusting. it added flavor. I'm I judging you so flavor. hard, Camille. <laughs> to bring us back to an <laughs> earlier point, Japan imports the most cheese. Yes. Which means the EU will be the top cheese supplier for Japan, overtaking Australia. Who knew Australians exported that much cheese? I mean, probably a lot of people... We did not know that. Well, because Australia in general um, exports a lot of stuff to Japan because they're not too far from each other. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect it to be cheese Was because Australia was the one who mainly brought cheese over to Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of funny that the EU, which is way farther, is now surpassing a um, huge market, yeah. uh, focusing just on Jap- Japan to con- bring more like more Greer and Comte and all yeah. that great stuff. And, I mean, what's sad is that there's a downward trend for Japanese natural-produced cheeses as of 2014. Mm-hmm. Food milk production towards a popularity for cream production and not cheese. So, you know, as of 2017, natural cheese production fell by 2%, as I said earlier. Um, and it, it fell by 2% for the number of tons of milk going toward producing cheese directly, which is why EU suppliers are capturing a lot a large share of that market. Um, Interesting, though, because there obviously is a demand for milk, dairy products, and cheese due to the lack of agricultural space and the amount of cost it takes, that there is a higher dependency on imports. Um, And and Japanese, besides liking processed cheese, there there is a large portion of individuals who do want quality. And so if you're getting quality straight from some of the... France and Italy and Spain and, and, and Austria and Switzerland, which are considered like the best cheeses. U.S. too, but I'm just saying in this context, um, it, it kind of the two will equate to each other that there is that demand for imports um, coming in, and also good relations too, good trading relations, I guess. So, 
I wonder how much of this is due not so much for European cheeses, but that some of it is just the, the sort of historical attachment to something like Mondor or, you know, Cantel, like this, like wanting to try something from so far away that in, in chefs go after and I now you have a chance to have. I don't think it's so much as it being far away as it being more about um, things rooted in tradition and craftsmanship. Like if you go to Japan, things are very... People specialize in one thing, you know, and they do it for a really long time to the point where they are experts at their craft, they're masters. And so taking that and taking that perspective, I feel like when they look to the when they look to the EU, when they look to Europe and their traditions in cheese making, there is a certain respect there for wanting something that's rooted in such you know, strong traditions that Japan doesn't strong have because the trees, yeah, the dairy industry is fairly young. And so that's why the demand for European cheeses are higher. I'm pretty allocated into like a few handful of people. But um, the, the other thing that just sprung to mind was not so much like, because the U.S., as we know, produces a lot of cheeses, that there isn't necessarily a huge market of American cheeses coming into Japan. But that makes, again, clarity to what you just said about the tradition. And then it also made me think about how in Japan, I think there are a lot of things that are, like you said before, a tradition, but don't necessarily reach um, North America or Western market as easily. I mean, look how long it took. Not the big thing is matcha, even though matcha has a more um, kind of spiritual, uh, there's even a ceremony towards it. But really in the past five years, matcha became a big thing even though Jap- Japanese have been drinking matcha for thousands of years. I was thinking of cheeses that are coming from Japan. It might take a really long time before we get those in the U.S., just mm-hmm. because there's such a focus and emphasis on protecting localization in Japan, because I care for that craft mm-hmm. strip. It's not something you're going to just export so easily. It's, and again, like you said, it's easier just to import something. Yes, um, than probably cheaper too, which is why we get this food self-sufficiency yeah. rate that's declining. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know... Let's start talking about creameries now because then we can talk about yeah. someone who's actually doing something about the food self-sufficiency rate. Kyodo Gaksha Shintoku Farm in Tokachi, Hokkaido was founded in 1974 by Shinichiro Miyajima. Um, his son, his first son, Nozomu Miyajima, got his degree at Wisconsin State University, which is great because they have a wonderful mm-hmm. cheese program there. So in 1989, Nozumu used his experience with construction work to create a dairy farm that had a barn, a milking parlor, cheese-making facilities that uses as much natural power as possible via gravity, fermentation, and natural stone and carbon. Nozumu is also very interested in brown Swiss cows, a breed that produces quality milk with, with not much feed. And this is quite significant because, like we've, I've repeated many times, space and cost is a big issue. So if you have cattle that doesn't need so much feed, that's not so much pasture land, you can get more yield of milk out of that um, cattle, out of those cattle. So he's interested in raising Japan's food self-sufficiency rate higher by experimenting on his own farm with um, different types of cattle and the problem is though um there was the government had an initiative by 2015 to target 50 percent of products being um localized and that then got lowered to 45 percent and what really was meant was about 39 percent which is still pretty high for this type of movement to happen but what is cool about using brown swiss is that 
he can feed them with domestic feed instead of having to support feed for hungry, more demanding cows like Holsteins that require more grass and more feed. So the cheeses that they make, which are really awesome and quite well known. So Sakura cheese is a camembert style, which is a booming rhyme cheese. And this cheese is matured on cherry blossom leaves, which is then garnished with pickled cherry blossoms on top, um, which is beautiful because it brings the old Western style with the tradition of Japanese taste together in one cheese. And yes, there is a cheese Olympics that's based in Switzerland. And when this cheese was taken there, it won full out gold medals um, mm-hmm. because that's how good it is. Another cheese they make is um, Shintoko, which is a Gruyere style cheese that's aged for 10 months. This also won multiple awards. Um, there's an all Jap- all Japan natural cheese contest which only hosts and judges domestic cheeses, best cheeses from Japan, of everything from Meiji to Snowbrand to small um, creameries. So it's full scale. And then what's really cool, something that they're making now, is um, is a new version of their own version of Raclette, which is using Tokashigawa River more water. And so more is um, uncultivated land, so they're getting fresh spring um, water. So it's a, they're sourcing this water to mature the raclette when they wash it. So it's a very specific use of terroir and a unique raclette special only to Japan. Yeah, um, I, I love that. amazing. Because it takes the concept of, you know, the regionality of raclette in Switzerland, and they're doing it in Japan and like specifically going out of their way to get water that's underground in an underground vegetation layer of the earth. And that's just so so cool to me. Um, The other creamery that we want to focus on is a little bit different. It's called Boca. It's located in Inuicho in Hokkaido and it was founded in 1990. The president right now is Dai Shoji. They are huge advocates for grass fed cows. Their entire herd is grass fed and they produce milk, cheese, yogurt, cakes, sweets, and pudding. So this company is different in that it produces more um, playful products, not so much focused just on cheese. They have Angler and Holstein cows, and they are very serious about their land. They've inspected their land with geologists to fully understand how to treat their soil right and what improvements are needed to be made for better temperature, light, and water control below the surface of the earth. They do this because they know that quality milk comes from the ground up. They do not use herbicides, pesticides, so their weeds grow in the pastures, and they're fine with it because they let their cows choose wherever they want to graze. Their most popular product is Cacio Cavallo cheese, which is a stretch curd cheese. And, I mean, yes, I've said earlier, like, they don't make much cheese-wise, but they make a lot of cheese products, if that makes sense. So this Cacio Cavallo curd is produced in little balls or in long um, string cheese form. They make milk pudding out of this cheese, sweets, like cheese sweets, which I actually recently saw at a 99 Ranch. There was um, a little camembert candy, like a little round guy, and I, I tried it. it. It's not quite my thing, but um, it kind of tastes like milk candy, but salty. It's weird. Wait, wait, a little round guy? What's that mean? It's like packaged in this little, little round, like it looks like a candy, like a milk candy, but you put it in your mouth and it's like salty. It tastes like a baby bell shrunken down. It's called camembert candy. I, I don't, anyway, ch- check it out at, you know, a 99 ranch. 
Um, their packaging well, from if, Boca. And it, what? And if you go to Nine if you go to Nine Ranch, check out Meiji milk products. Yeah, they're, do the they're whole definitely going to be there. Everything. So Meiji, you might no. see a snow brand, but I doubt it because of the food scandal that you know ravaged the country. Um, if you are in Japan. <laughs> Check out the Boca milk products. Um, their packaging is super cute. And again, I think it seems to be geared more toward children's school food. Um, I can totally see parents going and buying this stuff for their kids, like packing it in little lunchboxes, um, little cheese candy, just so they get, you know, calcium and protein in their diet. Okay. So we have Gina, Gina Wiz. Gina Power in the room with us. Gina Cheese Queen. I like Queen. Queen's queen's good. (laughs) Queenie. Queenie. And she had a lovely trip to Japan recently. And so we wanted to ask if she tried any cheeses while she was there. Yes, it's real interesting to listen. I am so sad that I missed this Sakura. I wish I could have found that because, yeah, that would just be fabulous um but yeah just re- just spent the time in tokyo so really made it a point you know looking mm. at the markets going around and just see could we find some cheese what, what would we find mm-hmm. so in one of the gourmet markets you know they had a little little uh cheese stand there and the cheese store was called fermier so you can imagine yeah. what type of cheese they had a lot of and that was interesting you know you guys talking about so much of it's imported yeah and especially from france mm-hmm. italy you know they've got the They've got the history of the cheese. Yeah. They've got the export experience um, with it. And then, you know, you, you've got people that um, are well-traveled. They visited these places. They want that cheese there. But they, you know, happen to live mm. in Tokyo. So really saw a lot of that. Um, every restaurant we go to, we'd see if there was, you know, yeah. cheese on the menu. And I got to tell you, I mean, this happens here too, though. So I'm not dissing mm-hmm. um, <laughs> this restaurant yeah. by any means. But, um, you know, they had... Uh, they had fried camembert on oh, the menu. I was like, that sounds okay. awesome. Fried anything. Yeah. But fried camembert, are you kidding? So um, <laughs> <laughs> we like, we got to order this. So it was so cute. So it came out. Oh, it was just the cutest. And I'm so sorry. I don't have a picture, but I will describe my best yeah. I can. I expected it maybe to the whole thing. Like maybe the whole fried. round. Yeah. Fried. Would yeah. be like, that was kind of in my, my thought in my head. Oh, no, it came out. Um, there were four saltine crackers. Okay. And on it, there were just little, <laughs> four little triangles. Like they had cut the camembert yeah. into the little, little triangle pieces. And they, when we, they say deep fried, they were fried in tempura batter, which kind of makes oh. sense because that's often oh. what Japan's going to fry things in, right? Yeah. So it was like a tempura um, shrimp, but with camembert inside. So it had a really thick batter on the outside. Yeah. And so they put that on the saltine, um, just with a little toothpick and a little tomato on top. Oh. <laughs> so it was kind of an interesting okay. little presentation. And I got to say, you know, the camembert, I can see why this goes into another topic that we've talked about, yeah. too, how, you know, the AOC and the protection of the yeah. names. And camembert is a protective name for a reason, because yeah. the true camembert producers want camembert to be represented properly throughout the world. And there's like a standard exactly. of t- flavor. Yes, know? and when you order it, you know, you want to... If, if I didn't know that there's a billion different types of camembert, yeah. I would have been disappointed ordering this. What's yeah. the big deal about camembert? Yeah. Right, right. So, whole different topic. But, um, it, so it was very firm. It didn't really have a ton of flavor and it's interesting, yeah. you know, you guys talking too, that it's not the stinky cheeses and everything that they're after. Yeah. The taste buds of uh-huh. um, Japan. Aside from the blue factor yeah. that everyone likes that. It was a very, very mild flavor, but they did, uh, just like the French, have a little tub of um, some fruit preserves next oh. to it. So dipping that on there and the saltine into there <laughs> made them. the dish 
very fine. Yeah, and yeah. I got my cheese fix along with my eel and everything else, yeah. um, which was really nice. <laughs> I, have, I have to say, when I visited um, Niseko for, I, I went like skiing mm-hmm. one time. It was really cold, and we hopped into a little a little shop to get a snack, and I yeah. got a fried brie. Like Ooh, it was the same yeah. in tempura batter, but in tempura, this, it was okay. like the whole round. The whole this round, time. nice, yeah. Um, and it tasted more like a camembert. It was cool. more stinky. So, so there you go. I don't think there is a standardization. Of no, these kind of thing. Exactly. Like, yeah. So you kind of of winging it, and it's kind of a learning curve, I think, yeah. for everybody. Yeah. But, you know, interestingly enough, we did go to a trade, a cheese trade show. It's an annual conference in France a couple of years ago. And there was a whole Japanese contingent there, and uh, they had a map on the wall and had, you know, 200 ish little cheesemakers, you know, you know, some of them mom and pops. Um, but again, very small. And you bring up such a good point. There's not a lot of land for them to yeah. develop, you know, cows need to eat. They need, they need space, yeah. this kind of thing. So that, that's another factor of, um, what might prohibit huge explosion of cheese making in Japan. Yeah. But they were very creative. This whole no. Sakura with the cherry blossom leaves, they had um, some fresh little uh-huh. chev balls with yeah. um, yuzu peel, like that preserved yuzu. Delicious. Oh, so, oh, yeah. That, that, I did try it. That was delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that would go well because the chev is also kind of tangy. So exactly. The, the sweetness and the tanginess of the yuzu just mm-hmm. pairs perfectly. What a great. Like a little more perfection. Yeah, you know, so it exactly. Would work the same way. Little ball, and and then it, that goes so well with seafood, which is such a big thing yeah. in Japan. So mm-hmm. you can see it kind of all tied together. Yeah. But it's neat yeah, to yeah, see yeah. their little twists on yeah. classics. This yeah. cheese with the cherry blossoms, yuzu, bringing in traditional Japanese ingredients to enhance, you know, the cheeses and such. Yeah. Um, but Junior. so you know, advice but if it, you're going to go to Japan, so... don't don't expect a ton of cheese. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. But I also wonder too. Of what you were saying, Gina, that there there is there are like you said two hundred, but and there isn't space. There might not necessarily be a need to be exporting Japanese cheeses. No. It's, it's very so small that if you're in Japan, you know which farmers that you like your cheese. There's that direct market there. Why yeah. do you need to expand it? Exactly. Um, and who knows? And isn't that kind of um, the world's become so much one yeah. that I, isn't yeah. it kind of fun to have to go somewhere to get something? You know, I, mean, I think it makes it's it more nice. Special. Yeah, like... it makes it more special. Yeah, yeah, why do we have to export everything or import yeah. everything? Yeah. Uh, it's make become, it so it's becoming yeah. harder. Yeah. yeah, and it's kind of yeah. like it you know, cool. you, so I, yeah, you should have to go I there like, to get I, it. I, I like it. I like yeah. that you can't uh-huh. get it. You know? yeah. yeah. So that's my two cents mm-hmm. on uh, cheese in Japan. Mm-hmm. Also, um, next time you do go, to well, it's just awesome. Next time you do go to Japan, um, I watched recently. <laughs> there's cheese-filled dumplings, like the fried gyoza. Oh, you know, that's what I was, like, in my head thinking. <laughs> you they should dumpling put shops, cheese and dumplings. You go to dumpling shops. In Japan? Yeah. And then you, like, can order the um, cheese gyoza. <laughs> All right, I'm going back. Yeah, go back right now. <laughs> I mean, fried things and salty, fatty things, you know, go yeah. well. Always. In every culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Anyway, um, as we wrap up our first season of Dairy Maidens, um, hello, welcome to summer is almost here. Also, the World Cup, if anyone's into soccer, it's around the corner. Um, so shout out. We've talked so much about European cheeses that we have to mention that. But we want to deeply say thank you to all the listeners who have taken the time to um, explore the variety of cheeses and the stories around those cheeses that we've taken you. We really appreciate um, that you've gone with this journey with us we hope you've enjoyed the adventures of cheese making and the special histories of the cheese that we care for so as for today 
We've learned a little more about the awesome cheeses of Japan, and I've got a few new favorites I want to try, the sakura especially, and the raclette. Definitely, definitely want to try the sakura. If I can, I, it sounds like I'm going to have to take a flight over to Japan in order to get the I'll see the you there cheese, when I'm but, in Singapore. Um, yeah, well, yeah, the world's a small place. Um, we also want to say thank you to Gina, um, who's here in the room with us. Uh, she's whiz, and to Venissimo for providing us with all this amazing cheese, cheeses to eat and also this platform to talk about cheeses. And yeah, Camille and Julianne, thank you both because I've learned a lot too. And it's so interesting. I'm going to have to say we're going to have to do something from Singapore. Yeah. Julianne's heading back to Singapore, everybody. Yeah. We're so sad that she's got to go home. This is our last uh, episode for now. Yeah, this is it for now. (laughs) Camille's travel in the world, Berlin today, Morocco tomorrow. That's all good. But that means that we have more to speak of when we figure out how to get back together from cheeses from all over the world. This could be, this is what the dairy maidens are going to share with us. Yeah, we will never stop eating cheese. I don't, I don't think I will. I was th- I was already looking for jobs at cheese shops in Singapore. So, awesome. I mean, as always, if you think we've missed something or need to explore a topic further, let us know. Email your comments, thoughts, questions, and cheese-related concerns to info at venissimo.com so we can address all of them on the next segment of Dairy Maidens. But here from Specially Produce Network in San Diego, for the last time, we wish you a happy Tuesday and please, for your own sake... Eat, Eat more, more cheese. <laughs> Hi, fellow cheese lovers. Cheese Whiz Gina here, and I invite you to subscribe to our Noon on Tuesday podcast to hear all about cheese all the time. You can listen on iTunes or SoundCloud or subscribe via FeedBurner under Noon on Tuesday. You can also watch us live every week on Facebook at Venissimo Cheese at, you guessed it, noon every Tuesday Pacific time. We're fun, we're cheesy, so tune in and tell your friends to tune in too. Ciao! The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today.